Hello and welcome to Turning Point Tactics, the competitive Kill Team 40k podcast focused on giving you the strategies and tactics, the siege initiative, every turning point. I'm your host, Ryan, and I'm joined by the never-ending bloodlust in devotion to Corn, to my commander Farsight, Connor. How are you doing this evening, Connor? I'm good, thanks, Ryan. Uh, I'm also pretty excited about the latest news coming out, but that's that's Warhammer. Well, we'll go into it. I love Corn. I love Commander Farsight, and the thought that we're getting some sort of Farsight heresy is pretty exciting, but we've come here to talk about Kill Team today. Let's talk Kill Team, shall we? Yeah, it's probably probably a safe bet, but I mean, 10th edition is there, and it is very, very exciting, so it'll be interesting to see how that's going to affect Kill Team going forwards, because we're effectively seeing now what modern GW does when they change edition, so we can probably take that as a little bit of a guide to what might happen when Kill Team changes edition as well, so I know there's a bit of speculation already happening, but yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens, because it does look like they're very receptive to feedback from the competitive scene, um, just as they are in Kill Team. And it looks like they're trying to change a lot of their rules for the better, which is which is pretty awesome stuff, to be honest. But obviously, we're here today to talk about Turning Point 1, and our, this is like rounding off, really, our um, our casual to competitive series that we've been doing, which is taking everyone through the match play mission sequence, and we're ending up at that first turn. What's the main points that we want to focus on? Where are we going to go from here so you can set off the game in the, the absolute best uh, best uh, position going forward? So, you know, I've, I've done a lot of talking on uh, so far, Connor, about, you know, the match permission sequence. So it's probably best that we get some of your advice, you know. So what what do you think would be some really good advice for someone that's going into turning point one? Turning point one, you're looking at it. I think this is your opportunity to go all in. Just go 100%, commit just leave no room for any missed rolls, no room to fail that initiative roll, and you're going to either stomp the opponent and crush them or look like an idiot. Okay, interesting, because I was going to go something completely different. So I think what we need to do in the future is probably some, align some show notes just so we're on the same page, because, um, yeah, wow, that is terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible I've got, advice. I've got my notes, and they work on me. <laughs> so... If you're playing a narrative game and you want to get stuck in, you're running corn cool and all that sort of stuff, then yeah, Connor's your man. Away you go. You get fully in there uh, on turning point one. But actually, probably the better advice that I'd say is turning point one is about your low-risk plays, right? So it's more about guaranteed actions, trying to move forwards and, and, and sticking to a game plan. So there's a few game plans that you can have in Kill Team, and it's all about, and this is going to shock most people, the win condition, which is scoring VP. Okay, so the game plans that I'm going to like throw out to you now is your aggressive game plan, your sort of balanced game plan, and then your um, sort of defensive late surge game plan is, is the last one. So the way this works is it's all based on primary VP, right? So, so the, the aggressive game plan, which is obviously what Connor's a fan of, is where you try to effectively get four victory points on turning point one, four victory points on turning point two and four victory points on turning point three on your primaries and that then means that you've maxed all of your primary vp in the first three turns and therefore and hopefully your tack ops as well and therefore you're able to press straight into the into the next uh the next t- uh, the rest of the t- turning point just focusing on denying your opponent vp the more balanced approach is going to be the three 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 game plan where you're looking to just score three victory points each turning point, that's going to max you out at 12 at the end. But it means that you're not necessarily trying to overcommit resources. You're just trying to you know, see how it goes and just get just enough to be able to go forwards. And then finally, the last one is the 2244. So that's going to be quite a defensive play. So you're going to just get two points on turning point one. 
and then two points on turning point two, but then you're going to explode towards the end of the, of, the, of the game, picking up those four points as you can. Now, obviously, there's a bit of flex within these. These are not necessarily a set thing, where if, if you have the opportunity, you're playing a, a slow build game plan, and you can suddenly go from your 2-2-4-4, two, two, four, four, and you, you get an opportunity to go 2-3-3-4, uh, three, whatever, or 2-3-4-4, four, four, whatever it is, right? Then, then obviously, you're going to take that, but... That's kind of like the way, the way I, I, I want to break down the, the game plans that we're doing, right? So that's a, an important thing for you to look at is how much VP do you need to get? The answer is 12, right? And then how are you going to get that 12 VP over the course of four turns? Because you're not going to get in turning point one. Um, and that's probably where Connor goes wrong because he's, he's out there trying to get 12 VP on turning point one, but you can only ever get four, right? So that's I'll kind be, of... The, the I'll be honest with you. This is the first time VP has even entered my game plan. I'm just all about killing everyone. That's... <laughs> It's all about killing them as soon as possible and then seeing what happens to the points afterwards, which is, to be fair, it's what you tried to do to my, my um, Arbites, um, and it was almost successful for you, um, but I just managed to call it back in the end. But had you played, I think, anyone other than Corn, you probably would have uh, absolutely wiped the floor with me. But um, And there were some lucky dice rolls in there as well. But anyway, um, that's kind of the point, uh, by, by the by. So... This is kind of like my, my advice is have your game plan and then think about what you need to commit to be able to achieve that game plan, right? So if you're going out the door and you're on the aggressive game plan because you don't think you're going to have enough morals to hang around till turning point four, that's fine. Make sure that you commit just enough assets to achieve your game plan, right? So if you're going to go out and you're thinking, right, I need to score four VP turning point one. There is no point having, you know, eight models on all of the central objectives to score that to just get killed by blast weapons or whatever, turning point one. And then suddenly, boom, turning point two, you're now scoring two VP and turning point three, you're scoring one VP and then turning point four, you're scoring nothing. Your game plans, it's, it's ruined straight away, right? So think about how much you actually need to commit to be able to achieve what it is you're trying to do. Now, it might be that, let's say you're playing um, Corn, you're playing Elites, whatever, and you're playing Legionary, and you want to think, right, I'm playing the aggressive game plan, I want to score four, four points, turn point one. I don't think that's good, good advice, by the way, but let's say that's your game plan. Well, if that is, I think what you want to do then is you want to think, okay, I'm going to commit two models into the central objectives to secure me those four VP, and then I've effectively got four models hanging back, and they're going to set up for a, uh, a counter-charge or a, a counter-punch, like I like to call it, um, ready for, for next turn. So that's kind of like the way you want to be looking at it. So throughout the whole of that turn, stick to that game plan. Commit just enough to get the VP that you want, and then make sure you start setting up for turning point two. So the way I look at it is, let's say you're on the 4-4-4 game plan, all right? So you want to send those two models up up threat first turn, and they're going to sit on those central objectives. Now, if they get if they survive turning point one, turning point two, they're going into your opponent's backline. They're now working on denying your opponent VP, killing key models, and trying to do as much damage as possible. Meanwhile, the the the, the sort of the second wave is then, is now moving into the middle ground, and they're, they're going to go from the midboard, and they're going to be the guys that are going to deny your opponent VP in turning points two and three and four and then finally you're getting that third wave so you send them up in sort of like in pairs right now again this is this is generic advice there's going to be an opportunity where maybe you can throw a, a psyker up there really aggressively turning point one and you can just do something something that's incredible but generically that's kind of what i'm what, what i'm talking about so you need to think about how you're setting up turning point two you've got to keep that threat of counter attack available or a counter punch as i like to call it and that might be that you have it so that if they charge your model that's on the center objective you have a model that's nine inches behind that or let's say 
eight with one inch engagement range, whatever. So you can charge or it's 11 inches and you can move, dash, shoot, wherever it's going to be, whatever threat range you need to maintain for the models that you have on the table. And that's your counterpunch, right? So they're ready to then go in and then get that uh, going forwards. The next thing you need to look at is obviously going to be threat ranging, right? So we talk about this all the time. And this is a two-way thing, okay? So if you're playing a, an aggressive army, you need to make sure that your threat ranges cover your opponent's objectives, right? So if you're playing Seek and Destroy and you need to kill models on opponent's objectives on turn two and turn three and turn four, well, ha have a guess what? You need to make sure that your charge range covers that objective. And if they're playing defensive barricades or counter melee barricades, wherever it's going to be, well, make sure you've got that distance to be able to get in there and, and do what you need to be able to do. Or vice versa for shooting, wherever it's going to be. And then... When you're looking at the threat range coming back at you, well, make sure that your opponent, if it's going to be a shooting model that's going to shoot your guy, you're making sure you're positioning them so you can get the charge on the objective that you want to get, but you're not going to get shot by the other guy, that sort of thing, right? So think about those threat ranges, think about how much your models can manage and what they can't manage, and then try to put them in places where, where they can do, and only commit what you need to for that game plan. Any sort of thoughts on any of that, Connor? No, I like it. I like the point about having two threats i think it's something both yourself and mark talk about quite a lot but have two threats going so that hopefully your opponent can't deal with both at the same time and you've got something to go with at turning point two absolutely because it's it's so hard to deal with like two models at the same time There's, occasionally you can do it with ga2 and that sort of stuff and you might be able to get a double kill off but realistically if you have two models that aren't in blast range of each other and they're spread out uh, one on each objective there's not many teams that are going to be able to kill both of those models on turning point two at the same time, right? That's that's like that is rare that they're gonna be able to do that, and that's kind of where we get to like threat saturation. So let's say you have those two set up, maybe your opponent kills one of them. Well, actually, you still get to do your second charge or whatever it's going to be. So you have those options, and it makes your opponent make some hard choices about right: do I kill this guy? Do I kill that guy? Etc. Etc. And because you're only committing enough resources, even if they do, then come round and they charge the guy that you didn't want them to charge. Well, you've got that counter punch. So now suddenly your guy that's just holding back slightly is now charging onto the objective where you want him to be for turning point two anyway, and he's killing the guy that's there, which is what you want him to do on turning point two anyway, and so you're getting really good action efficiency going forward. So that's kind of like the way I, I, I like to think of it. But again, you have to look at this from the, what is your game plan, right? So if your game plan's going to be like a 3-3-3-3, three, 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 throwing out loads of models on turning point one, that's not a good plan. That's probably going to end up with you losing way too many guys and running out of resources going forwards, right? So it's it's worth as well looking at is how you're budgeting your your allocation of men and that sort of stuff as well, right? So how much how much uh, how many operatives do you have to play with? How many can you afford to lose each turn before you're out? And like, and how's that going to affect uh, your, your tack ops and that kind of thing? And speaking of tack ops, I think it's probably worthwhile looking at them right from the offset of how is that matching your primary game plan, right? So let's say you, if you're playing uh, Recon, right, and you're looking at your, and you've got Courier, which is going to be scoring uh, in the last two turning points, say, and you have Surge Forward, which can be doing the same, and you've got uh, some other objective that's a, a late scoring objective, but you're going out the gate playing for the 4-4-4 game plan. Well, do you have enough models and resources to be able to maintain that until the end? And there are some exceptions, like Star Striders is one of those exceptions that love to play on objectives, and therefore they love to move up forwards and do that sort of stuff. But you know, is that is that the right game plan for you, or are you better off going for a three-three-three style? You know, thinking about it in, in that sort of sense, where are you planning to score your VP? Are you security and you've taken seize ground, and do you need to have models alive on the on the on the last turn? Well, if that's the case, maybe a two-two. 
four four game plan is is better for you. That kind of thing is I think I think is really important. And finally, like my last point and turning point one is 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 we talk about low risk, right? And by low risk, I mean reliability of stuff as well. So how do we how do we guarantee reliability? How do we get more reliable? Well, if it's a uh, an attack of some some method, it's going to be in those rerolls, right? So how are you getting rerolls? How are you stacking that? How can you make that attack relentless? How can you have the AP to deny your opponents rolling really good on their armor saves? How can you, um, I don't know, whatever it is, deny their cover, whatever it's going to be, right? So how do you make it more reliable? Removing your opponent's ability to have rerolls, removing your opponent's ability to retain dice, uh, and then also maximizing your own efficiency. And if you can't do that, can you just do some guaranteed actions instead? Like, is there a way that you can move and dash onto an objective and do a mission action and then suddenly it's impossible for your opponent to reach that 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 particular objective with sufficient APL to then be able to take it off of you. I don't know. If that is, then it's a guaranteed action, right? So maybe you can just go and do that um, instead. And then, and then finally, like the, the one thing that I'm just going to cover off on, on, on turning point one is sometimes your game plan, it, it's not going to go the way you want it to go, all right? And there's definitely something to be said about like a sunk cost fallacy. If you're if it is not working out for you and you started the game on a four 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 game plan, but you're only gonna be able to get three on get on turning point one, that's fine. Adapt your game plan on the fly and go, you know what, I'm on a three 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 now, I'm gonna get three points every turn. Or maybe it's gone really wrong and suddenly I'm gonna play a two two four four game plan, right? Whatever it's gonna be. Don't throw good models after bad. Like if, if your opponent has gone hyper aggressive out of the door and you think I'm gonna try and match fire with fire and it's not working out for you. Just playing too aggressive to try and meet them with that level of aggression is going to work out poorly for you. And this this, this was 100% what happened to me at Warhammer World the, the other day when I was playing against my teammate Clostry. He went out the door for a 4-4-4 game plan, right? And he went straight out on those objectives and I tried to match him on turning point one and tried to do a 4-4-4 myself. It went horribly wrong. I ended up burning all my options to be able to do even a two two four four or anything like that, I burned it all, and I ended up doing like a two 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 game plan instead, and that meant that I lost the game overall. So, a few things to think about there. But watch your game plan. Those are the, those are the three options that I have at the moment, which I, which I think. But maybe we'll develop those as as we go on. Um, that's kind of the, the the main main thoughts. Anything you want to add in, Connor, on anything I've, ju- I've just said? No, I, d- I do like the command point budget idea. I think it's nice. It's something I've only really been thinking about quite recently when I'm playing kill team. Normally, I would approach it quite ad hoc and then I'd always um and uh about when to do a command point re-roll and when not to. But I think if you've got, as part of your strategy, this is when I'm going to use my command points. This is what they're for. And I've got this much surplus spend. So I've got, say, two opportunities for command point re-rolls. When I do them, it's up to me. It just helps you with that decision-making. And it's good to have a plan from the get-go, from turn, turn point one and think about it then. Yeah, great, great point. Okay, Connor, um, I think that's some some good little gen to start with and, and to end our um, conversation on uh, turning point one, and that's our end of our sort of uh, com- casual to competitive uh, streak. If people have been enjoying this content and they think, you know what, I really want to try and give you some you guys some support, I really like what you're doing, is there any way that you could potentially uh, tell the guys out there how they could best support a podcast like us that's trying to get started on, on, on the beginning? Yeah, and hopefully they don't want to miss out on any future deep dives that we might want to do because that's we want to do that, don't we, as well. So the first thing they can do is like and subscribe. It's simple, and if you can get us to a 1,000 subscribers, that's when YouTube will start monetizing us. I think we're almost at 500 now, which is brilliant. We love the support. 
but yeah like and subscribe drop a comment we love it secondly you could just if you want to give immediate support you could just join our patreon and for a li as little as three pounds a month which would be the equivalent of us watching or getting to watch 50 minutes of the latest john wick it gets you early access to all of our videos as well as exclusive patreon only content and participation in our faqs which is an opportunity for you to ask priority questions and then finally if you are about to buy any warhammer or kill team you could use our affiliate link which is located below and click on that and purchase through there that helps support us too perfect that was that was first take as well we absolutely nailed that nailed Jeez. affiliate as well did you hear <laughs> i'm so proud man i am so proud uh we are so, we have saved hours in the edit um <laughs> you, you spoke about um priority questions from the patrons there and we do actually have a few priority questions uh so i think we could probably get started with with, with one of those Connie, if you want to uh crack onto that yeah so we've got a good question here i think we've all felt this way before how are the phobos do i beat Wormblade? they can now activate you all the time and their threats don't even have to move until after i've stopped activating and there's just nothing i can do about it i love the um Love the, the the phrasing of that, and I'm pretty sure it's exactly how they would have word, worded it online as well. <laughs> didn't um, <laughs> um, okay, it, it, it's a great question, right? So the, the main crux of the question right there is 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 how how you how can you play around activation advantage, right? So um, your opponent can just wait you out, and they can move all of their all, all their sort of their, their useless chaff models whilst you're moving all your big damage dealers, and then suddenly once you've done all that, they're then moving out and doing doing their their actions. So this actually ties in really nicely to, my, to the turning point one chat earlier on. So what is the game plan and what is the mission, right? So let's say you're playing loot. Loot heavily punishes a defensive um, like mindset from your opponent. So if, you're, if your opponent's a wait-and-see kind of opponent, then that's going to really, really heavily punish them. Because turning point one, you can get a 4-4, right? So you get all your four points done. And then on turning point two, if you're four points done as well, well, actually, there is not enough like VP left on the table at that point for them to be able to potentially come back. So they now have to play aggressive to be able to stop you from getting four points again on VP. Otherwise, they've guaranteed a loss, right? So there's only nine points available on loot missions for each player unless you can you can steal your opponent's loot, right? So um, that's a really good point to, to, to think about is if you're on that particular mission set, your opponent has to try and come out and do something to interrupt with your, with your um, your objective scoring, but main point here. Let's say you're not. Let's say you're playing whether it's going to be capture or, or you're playing secure, right? So um, this is going to come down to threat ranging. This is going to come down to defensive barricade placement. And this is going to come down to like how you're forcing your opponents to come out and interact with you. So if you're, as I said, if you're committing just about enough models to those objectives as you need, right? So on turning point one, you're on a four-four game game plan. Say you're, you're moving those models out and you have your guys on it and you've got barricades set up in a way in which your opponent has to quite heavily commit to be able to get within either two of you to be able to get you out of that barricade or they have to be able to heavily commit to get into melee range of you wherever it's going to be they're now going to be in a, in a vulnerable position themselves on those objectives ready for you to counter punch next turn right and the, the sort of the example that was given was 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 Wormblade versus Corsairs, right? So you have some great like maneuverability as Corsairs, and you have to be using that to your advantage. So you have an eleven inch threat range just baked into all of your models because you can move, dash, and shoot, and that's going to give you that eleven inch threat. So turn one, send send forward those those sort of defensive models that can survive potentially against um, your opponent, but can also pro provide a bit of a bit of a threat. So uh, like a Kanathi is a great model that has that defensive ability where they get to parry before the opponent strikes. 
that means that they're actually quite difficult to deal with. And Three's Relentless is is a reliable fight and profile. So you can move them up and, and they're going to provide a threat to most models. And even if they do kill them in melee, they're going to be taking a lot of damage. The other one that you can potentially use, which is, which is one that people don't necessarily think of, is particularly as a shooting enemy, is going to be your, your sniper, right? So rather than holding him back really far, putting him up on that objective but forcing them to come a long way over to be able to deny you cover, he's retaining two versus grenades, right? So he's actually really durable against those sort of like, um, those light grenade weapons. And so for instance, like a crack grenade, you have to get all four hits through to be able to kill him with a crack grenade. Uh, and that is actually somewhat unlikely. So um, that's a, a, a really good model to be, able to be able to put in that in that location and do that sort of thing. And you can then add durability buffs to them, right? So you can try and add, say, um, a threat and vulnerable save to one with, with your psychic powers, or you can look at the, the key model that you're worried about doing damage to them. Let's say it's a Kelamorph or whoever with his indirect pistols, and you can go, right, I'm going to freeze and grass your Kelamorph so he's not going to be able to move very fast, or he's not going to be able to get to where he wants to be able to do to be able to do the job that he wants to do. And boom, suddenly you're shutting down their key threats whilst letting your models move on to those objectives, and that's going to let you move forwards. In the background to that, though, you need to be setting up that counterpunch, right? You have to have a counterpunch ready to really punish any any aggressive moves your opponent's making onto those, those central objectives. So get yourselves in a position where you have your leader stacked next to your pistolero three inches away from each other, but they are they have 11-inch threat range of both objectives. So if they commit lots of models onto those central objectives in, in, at the start of, uh, let's say, turning point two, and uh, end of turning point one, sorry, ready for turning point two, Suddenly, you dual activate, you, your leader goes out, he's been comms buffed, so he's 3 APL, he's going to charge someone, kill them, or he's going to move, dash, shoot, and bop the point where it's going to be. Your pistol hero is going to do the same thing on the other side, he's going to go out, he's going to double shoot, he's going to pick up loads of kills, and your act your activation advantage now is, is, is has gone down. But that's kind of what you want on turning point two, right? Because now you're setting up Overwatch threats, and suddenly, if they come onto those objectives later on, they're going to be taking damage from those overwatches as well. And that's kind of like the way I, I, I would try and play it. So you have to sort of stack that combination of durability and offensive counterpunch ready to go for turning point two. And you have to be ready for it uh, going in. And that's kind of like the, the way you want to be playing that game plan. But as I said, if it's like a loot mission, you might just be able to play minimum effort, commit to it, take the objectives from them, take that loot. And remember, with Corsairs, you can spend a CP and just loot an objective, even if your opponent controls it, which is so, so strong. So there's not much they can do to stop you from looting at least one of those points each turn, unless they've got loads of GA2 guys on those objectives, and they don't, or they've somehow managed to remove all your models, which is uh, hard to do, but not impossible, but hard to do. And that's kind of like the way in which I would, I, I would try and skin that question. Any thoughts on that, Connor? Anything you want to you throw in? I'm going to caveat this by saying that I don't really know Corsairs very well. I don't know Wormblade very well, so I'm going to ask this as a question to you. But um, Ian, who was the guy that won the LWG tournament, he was showing me some tricks with Corsairs when I played him previously. And he mentioned the opportunity to swap the Psyker model for, I think she's the Hunter model, the one that can fly. Is there any opportunities mm -hmm. there to move Dash the Psyker up, swap for the Hunter, then you've got a model with fly that can maybe get... Uh, unactivated that could then go and harass some of their gunners or something from a forward position is there any opportunities there oh yeah there is and there's so corsairs have loads of tricks and another one that i quite like the the uh, an example of is um as you said there like the 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 uh, the shade runner with her ability to fly and pass over and do do like a melee attack as she moves over and throws silent weapons 
It's a really cool profile, but I, I sort of so, see her as a little bit of, of, of a mission player mainly, whereas the main damage dealers are things like your Starstorm Duelist. So you can do the same thing with a Starstorm, right? So you can move your Starstorm into a position where now suddenly the, the threat range that your opponent had perfectly mapped out to be like, I am outside of 11 of this guy and I'm not worried about it anymore. Well, have a guess what? boom, you've teleported him six inches forwards into a position where suddenly he's now going to move and dash and he's going to do damage and he might pick up a double kill and that might really hurt your opponent in ways that they weren't expecting or weren't ready for. So that's kind of what I would do. He's the guy that shoots twice for a single yeah, AP, which is yeah. which is really strong. And um and it and it can it can put the hurt on people which they're not expecting. So um the the the, the answer to, to that question is I think look at the game plan. What game plan is it you're trying to play? And then commit just about the right amount of resources for it. Set up those counter punches and then see how it goes from there. And make sure you stack those defensive buffs on the guys that you care about turn one. And you prep yourself ready for turn two. So my last three models on, t- on turn uh, turn two are usually going to be the, the sort of the Pistolero, the leader and the comms to be able to give out that extra bit of buff. Um, or potentially, if they have done some damage to a model and objective, maybe go and give them a little bit more, more healing if you can uh, going forward. Something like that. Um, cool. That was that was the first question. We actually had another question, didn't we, Connor? I think we did. Yeah. Uh, simple question. How do you approach planning for a matchup? And I think specifically they were looking at intercessors into Harlequins. Okay. So I think this is one of the, one of our players, uh, one of our patrons is, is a is a Harlequin player, and they're, they're they're struggling with consistently beating intercession, which is um, which is always going to be something difficult. Right? I, I would say like don't don't necessarily think about it too harsh on yourself. Like it's 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 always going to be variable based on player skill and that sort of stuff and the train whatever else. So um, th- this can be a very tough matchup for you to to, to win. Um, but I think there is a few things that you can do. So the first thing you need to look at is what is your like what is your opponent's chaps tactics and how is that going to affect your damage break points, right? So there's a few ways that you can you can effectively kill intercession. Um, and the 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 easiest way is going to be using uh, the upgraded damage on the kiss. For that three uh, seven profile has become a four seven profile and the reason for that is against like a durable intercessor you can hit them for six and then subsequently hit them again for another four that makes 10 and a final hit of four 14 will kill them even though that they, they've got that durable perk so it kind of takes away their advantage from having durable which is really really useful combine that with a pivotal role it gives you the opportunity to do that so that's one thing but obviously you're already tracking that um, so how do you then make the rest of it more reliable as well? Because unfortunately, incestors have like their their sergeant has fifteen wounds, and that trick is not going to work against that that leader, right? So there's not much you can do about that at all. But there is something you can do in the sense of the fusion pistol is is the weapon of choice in that scenario to to have the right damage breakpoints. So this is the way I'm looking at a matchup. So in 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 the Harlequins matchup versus incestors. Um, on both sides, I'm looking at how do I get the right damage breakpoint for the model that I want to kill? Because that, that's, a, that's a universal thing, all right? So looking at it from the, the intercessor's point of view, well, the Blessed Bolts makes my gun go from 3-4 to 4-5, and most Harlequins are 8 wounds. So if I put that on my leader, who's got hitting on 2s, and ceaseless, I have like a 70% chance to kill a, a, a clown from shooting. And I can shoot twice. Now, it might be that they're not going to give me an opportunity to shoot twice, um, but maybe I can move, dash, shoot one person, leave myself in a position to overwatch another, right? And then suddenly I'm shooting twice. But let's say they do give you the opportunity. Well, Matt, that can be hugely damaging. So on the flip side, when you're the Harlequins player, 
you need to be thinking, where are those big damage dealers that are going to do me problems? And how do I best uh, threat match against them, right? So how am I going to focus enough damage to kill the right model in the right way? Now, it might be that you, you need to use um, your your mirror of minds to put their leader down by just even one more wound, right? Can then change that math. So they go from 15 to 14 wounds. Suddenly, your murderous entrance play with the kiss, it works. And if you get three hits, um, well, you need four, but... If you get four hits, you can suddenly go in, crit, murderous entrance for CP, that's your 10 damage. They parry or hit you, whatever, it's irrelevant. You then get to hit them for the next one, and you've taken out one of those key models straight away with your pivotal role, and you're in a, you're in a great place going forward. So that's how, how I'm looking at it uh, specifically. Uh, when it comes to that threat matchup, it's damage breakpoints, and it's about making sure that I'm putting the right model against the right model or have a strategy to make it so it works um i think that's where you have to look at it so if if the damage breakpoint doesn't work then you know you have to shoot them first or you have to lower their, their, their wounds first so it might be that you think to yourself i'm gonna have to hit this guy with a fusion pistol so your last model to move is going to be a fusion pistol and you're going to position them in a way so they're perfectly matching up against your your opponent's leader so they can get that move dash shoot turn one or whatever it's going to be but just be really careful of, of their threat range as well because you know you have that really key piece that you need to move and, and do what you need to do. And if you can get that guy out and shoot that leader turn one, well, then you know what? Then that's a great opportunity. Let, let's take it. And then maybe you win initiative on turn two and you get another kill with your fusion pistol. And if you're getting two kills with your fusion pistol on against intercession, then they're really going to be hurting against that. So um, that's kind of how, how, how I'm looking at it is, is damage breakpoints as a, uh, as a key thing for threat matchup. Um, any thoughts on that, Connor? No, it makes a lot of sense. You talks talks a lot about damage, though. Anything about the sadists that they've got? Any bespoke treatment there you think about? Um, yeah, so I guess the, the the classic thing that I've seen with Harlequins. I haven't I haven't played enough of them myself, so I don't I don't want to give too much bad advice. Um, but this is what what I see. What's most threatening to me when I see it played against me is is that matching of the the, the correct sadas. Uh, for what you need versus uh, the, the enemy you're playing at the time. So um, let's say in that matchup, turn one, you know that you're going to be getting, uh, you're, you're going to be focusing on shooting. So potentially looking for giving your Sadath to, to the best shooting model. And it might be that it's the Death Jester, or it might be that it's going to be a Fusion Pistol. Whichever one it's going to be, you want to make sure it's, it's assigned to that. Then using your leader to switch it into the melee uh, thing to be able to get the crit with the the kisses that you want later on is then going to be the next opportunity because I think that's where it's going to be really important to be able to be able to win is doing sufficient damage with each of your models because realistically with a shoot twice and you know three ceaseless and that sort of stuff I think they have the volume of fire just to be able to put you down if they're using bolters um, and if they're not using bolters. They're going to be charging you in melee where their four or five damage is going to be enough to be able to kill you there as well. So, um, And they fight twice. If it's not, they're going to kill you on the second fight. So I think like the, the ability to, to retain cover dice is, is probably not going to work against that sort of team. So I think you really have to lean into killing them as efficiently as possible before they can kill you. Um, maybe there's some Harlequin players out there that think that's, that, that they have some better advice. And you know what? If you do, we'd love to hear it. Put it down in this comment section and think, actually, the way that I would get around in session is X, Y, or Z. But that's kind of the way I'm looking at it is I think it's 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 easy to be um, to be vulnerable to their shooting uh, or their, their melee if they can double shoot you or if they can um, charge and fight you. So you have to play around that threat distance as, as much as possible and then use a correct SADAF where you can support what it is you're trying to do. 
Can I can I reframe the question in a small way? Because I know you you've played quite a bit of intercessors, and it might if you, if you approach how you would plan for your game against Harlequins, it might give some ideas for the guy who knows what your plan is and how we could then counter that. So your intercessors, you know, you're playing Harlequins. What's going through your head? Yeah, it's a great point. So um, personally, and I said like, I love that intercessor sergeant with the ceaseless bolt gun. Um, uh, sorry, auto bolt gun with the four or five damage, because I know that that's such a scary threat to leave until last. And I'm probably going to put him in a position where he's, he's sort of outside of charge range and he's, and he's, he's at the back, but he's able to swing out and maybe get some shots. And if I can, I'm going to see if I can work for some overwatch. Maybe I only get one shot of it, but that's all I really need. Because if I'm like methodical, um, hitting on twos, re-rolling ones, well, that's going to be pretty, pretty brutal against you. Um, so it depends what I'm running. If I'm running rapid, then I'm going to try and use that to my advantage to, to have the advantage on threat range where I can move, dash, and shoot you um, before you can get in, into melee with me because it's going to be really hard for you to be able to, if you're wounded or anything like that, effectively kill me with, with a clown before I can do some serious damage to you, even with, with a regular intercessor. And then my, my, my assault intercessors, particularly the grenadier and that sort of stuff, they're going to be moving forwards and, and do what they need to do up there as well. So... Um, I'm going to try and prioritize as much four or five damage as I can. And I'm going to try and prioritize on just killing clowns as efficiently as possible. And, and now that I know that I can do that with the Seek and Destroy attack up, where I can probably be rewarded for doing it as well, it's, it's going to really hurt you because we're playing over the same objectives. I know that if you come into melee with me, even on a good day, you're taking probably seven damage or six damage, even against my weakest melee operative. Um, and, and that clown is pretty much out of the fight. So um, I... I'm going to look to, to exploit that as a as an intercessor player. I'm going to use my shoot on death ploy and that sort of stuff as well. Um, and that's sorry, that's what I probably should have mentioned. You got to be careful of that shoot on death against your fusion pistol because uh, that can be really rough. So maybe not on turning point one shoot someone that's on engage that's going to shoot you back in the face. You know, make sure you try and pick on that guy that's on conceal um, so you can get that shot off and keep your guy alive before you then move and do it again on turning point two, that kind of thing. Because if you give it, if you give it as my, as my leader, for instance, and this is the perfect example, my leader's going to be hitting on twos, re-rolling ones, shooting on death. He's going to kill probably whoever whoever just shot him, even if it's a fusion pistol. He, he does not care. Um, so I'm going to play somewhat aggressive against you. I, I think it's it's going to be a, a tough matchup for both sides. I think it is favourable towards intercession, if I'm honest. Um, but I think playing around with those kisses, playing around with those those fusion pistols and the re-rolls is probably the, probably the way to go. Valid. So hopefully that helps. And sounds like, yeah, good. don't forget about that shoot on death, get that non-reciprocal shooting in. Absolutely. And, and if you do have a follow-on question to that and you think, actually, that's not quite answering what I wanted, I have another bit more specific uh, specific question on Patreon. Just just hit us up with, with, with a follow-up and we'll make sure to get, get to that next week as well. Um, okay, it is cheese day, Connor. We actually did, we're actually recording on a cheese day. Holy, <laughs> holy hell. Um, so we have a tactical tip for cheese day, which is always good. Uh, and this is going to tie into to this whole episode, which is pretty awesome. Um, so it's, it's going to be uh, deny your opponent VP, right? And it's, that sounds really simple, but it is the most important thing going into these uh into these new uh, match play missions because the game now is is so close at the, at the top tables right at competitive top level the, the game can be really really close and it's often going to come down to one or two victory points that's, that's going to win it for you and there's so many games now where we see that right so everyone's scoring pretty well in general uh and and you know people are doing a lot of you know two two four four game uh things or three 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 and they, and it's going to come down to can you stop their game plan if they're on a 4-4-4-4 game plan, whatever, so they're trying to get four points in the first three turns, 
can you stop them getting that on turn, let's say two and turn three, or you know, can you stop them scoring anything on turn three? So suddenly they, they only get eight points, whatever it's going to be. But realistically, it's focusing on just trying to get away with denying your opponents and VP. Now, best way to do that is is actually going to be on tack ops, right? So I think tack ops are far more easy to deny than primaries in general, uh, unless you're playing loot, where then you actually probably want to focus on, on denying primaries in, in loot because that's a different different game. But for the rest of it, it's going to be tack ops. So you need to understand what tack ops are out there, not just within your own archetype, right? So you need to think to yourself, what is it that my opponent's trying to score? And you can you can have a look and go, right? What's their what's their faction tack ops that have available? What could they have hidden or not re- uh, released yet? Are they running seek and destroy that sort of stuff? And then think about how am I going to deny them points? And it might be something as simple as they nominate one of your guys as, as eliminate guard, and you know that you've maxed your your, your points, and the only way that, that they can catch you is by killing the, your guards. And you just run them off of the point and hide them on that game. And for the rest of the turn, you move everyone off of your your, your objectives. And because you've already scored your, your 4 4 4, whatever, and you're max on primaries, and you've maxed your secondaries, and you just move everyone off objectives, and they can't nominate a guard anymore. And suddenly, boom, that's denied them one VP, and you're guaranteed a win, right? Like something as, as simple as that might be the way to do it. Um, but you have to think about how, how you're doing it. Because if your opponent is getting um, 18 or 20 VP based on if they're painting the models or not, whatever, whatever the tournament you're doing, if they're getting that, then it, it the only thing that matters is is denying them one point because otherwise they're going to win unless you also max and then you're playing for a draw. Um, so the tactical tip this week is going to be deny your opponent VP because the games are so, so close now um, and it's all about how, how you can deny as effectively as you can score. Any thoughts, Nicola? I'm very intrigued that you didn't say that one method to deny your opponent VP is by killing all their models, but yeah, we'll... <laughs> You can you can go with the, the the game plan of absolutely tabling your opponent, um, and that is that is valid. Like, to, to be fair, so I I actually had the opportunity to play as a legionary um, down at the the local club, and I really enjoyed being able to play high progressive, and it was really good fun. Um, and so I I came out the out the gate sprinting um, on a four 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 game plan, and was. You know, really enjoyed how how I could play seek and destroy and just get so many points so efficiently doing so, and really lean into it. And then I just went because at that point on my four 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 game plan, I knew that at, you know midway through turning point three, I had sufficient resources that I was I was guaranteed my points that turn. So I just put the rest of the resources in maximum denial. Right. So how do I remove as many of my opponent's models as possible for the table as quickly as possible? And um, and it was it was brutal. It was really brutal, but it's also really, really effective, uh, and it was really good fun. Um, so I, I did a little bit of a little bit of corn plays there while I was playing Nurgle, but a little bit of corn plays with the the level of aggression you'd have, you'd have loved it, Connor. He's in, he's in your grip. You're in his grip now. He's uh, yeah, captured, he's corrupted. And you know, and I'm going to some tournaments at the weekend. I've got two planned: one on Friday and one on uh, Saturday. And watch me absolutely throw them because I get carried away just uh, ignoring all of my own advice uh, as as per usual. All right, Colin, I think we've got time just to squeeze in a little bit on on some Meta Watch. Um, what, what do you have from us from the stats uh, this week? Well, not from me, but from Hot Sauce Tony, because he's delivered the goods and he's uh, dropped some new data out. So have a click on the link below. Have a look at Hot Sauce Tony's new data. It's very, Hot Sauce Tony's new data. It's very interesting. But essentially, if we look at it, the thing that caught my eye the most is Exaction Squad and Hand of the Archon. So if you look at the percentage of the meta the thing that caught my eye first is that exaction squad 
is at 0.69% of the meta. That's a very funny number. That's what caught my eye. Nice. And Love then uh, Hand of the Archon is sitting at 2.35%, which is interesting. They've both been out for a similar length of time, and yet roughly, if we're looking at it, every time his action squad's getting picked, Hand of the Archon's getting picked three times. And it's just interesting. What, what is that telling us? Why do they seem more favourable? I think that's a yeah, it's a really good point. And there is clearly going to be, and this is like the, the classic caveats with all stats, right? There is a, there is so many reasons, but it's interesting to explore them and, and be like, why why is that happening? So, firstly, what I'm going to say is the hand of the archon. Uh, there is a bunch of models that already exist that people might have had from their existing Jakari collections that they could use in proxy. So they might be able to already have the models, and therefore they haven't had to hobby them or you know build them and paint them. And you know how much I hate painting, so like if I could do that, I'd be all over it. Um, so maybe that's that's one reason. Another reason is you only really need nine models, and therefore for a lot of people, building and painting nine models actually is pretty easy. Whereas building and painting eleven, or as as it turns out, a full basically twenty for all the roster options. Is, is far more of a commitment for someone to make when it comes to making the, the RBT. So just from a hobby perspective, there's a bit of a discrepancy there. Um, sending off and posting them to someone. Yeah, and that takes time, right? So you have to you have to get get them all, all together, get them built. You have to set, you know, arrange a, a payment plan, all that sort of stuff. It's, it's difficult. And, um, and, and, that, and that's the only reason why that mine haven't hit the table yet. So, um, but, you know, that's, uh, that, that's life. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. I so I think that the, the hobby element is is going to be part of it, right? Like the the exaction squad, there weren't existing models to use, um, and and they are there they are more models and they require more more effort and, and and that sort of thing to be able to get on the table. The other thing that I would say though is I think that they have a bad matchup into elites, and that can leave a real feels bad when we know how much of the the meta is elites. So people are seeing them or they're playing them potentially at a club level. And they're just seeing that they're not doing particularly well into that matchup, and they know they're going to play that matchup at the competitive level. So therefore, they're not taking them with them to the to, to the tournament scene. Um, so I think that's probably an interesting point as well. Is you know, if if thirty percent of your games are not guaranteed losses, but very very hard to win, well then you're probably not going to bother taking that team, right? Whereas I think the hand of the archons need to have a much better matchup into a lot of those teams. I think there's also a little bit of play style, which I think kind of the Archon have the same um, fun factor that Corsairs have, right? So Corsairs are just really fun to play because they're explosive, they're manoeuvrable, you know, they, they feel like they're doing a lot of stuff um, and, and you, they have so much flavour in their team with each of the models that they're doing very, very different things. So you just really enjoy playing them. Um, so that's like, you know, that's a real drawing point, right, to, to a team. is like, that looks like a really fun team to play. And I think Jakari have the same thing going for them, right? It's like, you can play aggressive, you get rewarded for it, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's going to be worth getting some some thoughts on, on this from some players that have played them competitively. And we'll hopefully talk to, sure, yeah. to to Ben about this because he's going to have some great ideas, I think, on it. But um, but I think that's probably where it's coming from, is, is they feel they've got slightly more of a play into more of the field. So they're they're slightly more competitive. I don't think they're the most competitive, but I think they're, they're more competitive. Um, and then combining that, they also have just a bit of a fun factor that, that, that people people enjoy um, enjoy going. And I, I think what might not have helped is some of the receptions to the RBTs rules in the sense that you know they had the 
um, being able to deny your uh, scouting step option. I think some people were unhappy with that as a sort of concept or they felt like it might not be fun to play against, for example, and therefore they might be hesitant to take them because they're worried that their, their opponent might not enjoy playing against them too much. That kind of thing could play into it as well. Um, but from a from a competitive point of view, I think Hand of the Archon has a better matchup into most teams um, than, than I would, or into the meta that I would say uh, the RBTs do, because I think the RBTs are really good into horde teams, but into the teams that matter, I think they're going to struggle quite quite hard. Um, do you have any thoughts on it, Connor? Why do you think that they're less popular or more popular? I hadn't even considered the fact about the hobby angle, but that's a very valid point, and the fact that some people probably have some dusty Dark Elves on their shelf that they haven't used in years and thought, oh, there's an opportunity to bring them up. But one thing I would say from my own angle is just looking at the rules, I think I instinctively felt I had a plan with Hand of the Archon about how I'd approach this team and how I'd play with them. Whereas our BTs, there's a lot of interesting new rules, new ideas that are exciting, but I don't know how they synergize. And I'm, I'm, I was like struggling immediately how I'd play them. Well, I didn't have like a, yeah. a gut reaction. Do you know what I mean? They're quite a complicated team, aren't they? Yeah. It's interesting because um, one of our team members, Joe, was, was 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 talking about how he was trying to figure them out, and he was going through like you know game after game, trying different things, and like you know really trying to make them work. And I think he just went in the end. You know what? I like. This, this isn't the team for me to be able to, to, to take to tournaments and be able to get get out there. So um, even someone there who, who you know played them on TTS a lot before they had the opportunity to get the models and that sort of stuff still couldn't really figure them out um, easily. So I think there is I think there is some stuff there, but I just think that the matchups that matter is it's really going to hurt them. And if they go into like Nurgle Legionary, I'm not sure there's anything they can do. Um, and and they're going to get really punished. And and there's ways you like. I think there's ways that they can be fixed. Don't get me wrong. Like I don't think they're going to um, be, be terrible if, if they just tweak some stuff. But how they fix them is going to be really important because if they make them inadvertently stronger at hordes or versus hordes whilst making them better at elites, then oh my goodness, that could really backfire. Ways when you get a super faction out of nowhere. So I think they have to tailor those um, those buffs to focus on that elite matchup and how they're going to defeat that one in particular. So. Um, I think there's some stuff there, and we'll cover that in an episode. Actually, probably in a faction deep dive on them, which will be worth doing as, as to what we think would be good, good nerfs and buffs for, for various teams. Well, that that brings us to the end of our match play mission sequence. I think. Yeah, that's which is awesome stuff. So, um, I know people have been asking for it, and they really want to know about what we're doing uh, up next, and and a little bit of a, an outline of, of of what you've got to look forward to is we're going to start going into those those faction deep dives. Um, Hopefully there'll be a, a similar length to these sort of episodes and we're going to go quite quite in depth. And we're really going to sort of focus initially on the, the teams that you're most likely going to be seeing again. So um, we'll look initially at, say, like Intercession because I think that's probably a team that you're most likely to play against on the table and therefore you most likely need to be able to know, know the most about, right? So, uh, and then we'll look probably to do like an elite team, then we'll do a mid-range team and then, a, you know, an elite pseudo-elite, whatever you want to call them. And then finally we'll go into like... Um, a a horde team as well, so probably something like Vet Guard or maybe Imperial Navy Breachers because they're climbing up in the meta representation as well. So um, a few options there, but that's what we're looking forward to next. Um, but that's what's going to bring us to the end of this episode. Um, and hopefully uh, you found something new or useful whilst listening. If you did, throwing us a like would be greatly appreciated. And if you want to make sure you don't miss out on any, any episodes, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you get a notification as soon as the next next one drops. Um, and that really is, as, as you said, the best way to help a small channel like ours. 
If you can't wait and you do want early access, we do have a Patreon uh, where you get exclusive access to all of our content ahead of time. And you also get those Patreon priority questions that get answered on the show. Um, and that's a direct channel to, to Connor and I to be able to get some tactical input straight away that you can apply on the table. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. So drop a comment below and we'll get right to you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Ryan. This has been Turning Point Tactics and we'll see you next week. See you next week.